The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. If you turn in your scriptures to John chapter 11, we'll see a, a family going through crisis. Their brother had been sick for some time now. This wasn't an unusual. After all, winter is a, a time for illness, as many of us have experienced. And year after year, despite whatever challenges would come, God had always sustained their family. He had always been with them. He had given them good health. God had been good. Even with the passing of their mother and father all those years ago, Big Brother had stepped up to lead the family and been a rock in the community. He was loved by all. He had such good friends. He loved God and had been a a pillar of strength for his family, especially his two sisters. But this time was different. This sickness was different. Lazarus, after, after maybe getting better for brief moments, suddenly and rapidly was getting worse and worse. He had barely been awake for more than a few minutes yesterday, and his breathing was becoming more and more labored. He was not going to live. Martha, the older of of his two sisters, she couldn't face it yet. How could this be happening? Jesus had just been here a few weeks ago. He had just passed through on his way to Jerusalem. People said he was still in the region. He was nearby, maybe only a day's journey away. Maybe we could get him. Maybe he could come back. So Martha and her sister Mary, they send messengers as fast as they can. But Judea, where they live in Bethany, is not a safe place for Jesus, and it's not a safe place for his disciples. There are death threats coming their way constantly since the last time they've been in the region. So they're hesitant to come. Thomas, Peter, the others, they would have no interest in going back right now, but for Mary and Martha, the stakes are are very, very high. So they send the message directly to Jesus, and they tell him this, Lord, your dear friend is dying. The one you love so much, he's dying. They had sent that message days ago. Surely the messenger would have found Jesus by now. He would be coming soon, wouldn't he? And in the agonizing waiting, Mary has not left her brother's side. Between tears and prayers, she's barely eaten anything. She is overwhelmed with grief. Martha, on the other hand, can't stop moving. She can't stop pouring her life into caring for her brother. She's talking with the physicians. She's preparing meals. She's tending to the household. She's readying rooms for when Jesus comes. And constantly glancing out her window, glancing down that road with a steadfast hope that any moment now she will see her Lord coming. Too busy to cry. Too busy to to face the reality of what is happening in the room right next to her. For her, it's not over yet. It's not too late. Until it is. Mary calls from the other room. The family gathers around the bedside to say goodbye to their brother. One last squeeze of his sister's hands, one last breath, and Lazarus has died. Jesus didn't come. Over the coming days for Mary and Martha, there would be barely any time to process what had happened. There would be so much activity in their town. Preparations would be made right away, that no time to wait for the burial. Mourners would be coming to weep and wail to demonstrate their love for Lazarus with the volume of their crying. And in the midst of all this chaos and activity, Lazarus would be anointed with oil and spices. He would be wrapped in linen strips and he would 
with a great procession be brought to a tomb, laid inside, and a great stone rolled in front of the entrance. For a week after that, guest after guest would come into the home of Mary and Martha to visit with the sisters, maybe to share a meal, to pay their respects to the man that was so well-known and so well-loved in the community, and, and there would be great comfort in this for Mary and Martha. But it wouldn't prevent those quiet moments those moments that we're all so familiar with in, in grief, those moments when the, the frenzy of busyness stops just long enough for the grief to come yet again. Maybe you've been there. Moments of distraction, moments of comfort, and then unexpectedly, another wave of grief. Overwhelming. Anger. Sadness. Pain. Jesus didn't come. Jesus had waited days and in the waiting, Lazarus had died. The more time I spend in ministry and the longer I live, and this should probably go without saying, but the more tragedy I see, the more pain that I witness around me, and the more grief that I experience. And I'm not, not talking about all the pain that we, we can turn on the TV and see, although that is so real and so prevalent. I'm not talking about pandemics or, or, or wars in foreign lands, displacements, earthquakes. No, no, no. The longer I live and the longer I'm in ministry, I'm, I see more and more of these daily personal tragedies close at hand, which cause us to, to just long for something better, for something better than this, this world. Just in the last month, maybe you know this, our church family, the extended church family, has had a lot of loss. People have lost brothers, sons, mothers. And it's felt like wave after wave, and maybe in some sense, we know that's how life is. Death is just part of life, isn't it? This is the way we should expect it to be. But in sorrow and loss, when we sit in that grief, we can't help but think to ourselves, this is not the way it ought to be. Have you ever felt that? This is not the way it ought to be. And we then turn to the scriptures, and as Christians, we root ourselves in, in the fact that we don't mourn as those without hope, that ultimately we look to God, we trust God, and we find comfort in him. But when those around us are hurting and suffering and are in the midst of it, when we're hurting and suffering, sometimes it can be really hard to grasp hope. We just sang the song. It, it, we sang, when Jesus walks into the room, sickness starts to vanish, and every hopeless situation ceases to exist. And for some of you, that was a sweet reminder. It was a sweet comfort. But for others, maybe this unwelcome question popped into your, your mind. But what if he doesn't show up? What if he doesn't heal? I know he's real. I know he's able. But what if he doesn't? Pain is something we are almost never prepared for. It sneaks into our, our lives uninvited when we least expect it, and in an instant, it can poison our joy, it can dash our hopes, but the good news of the Bible is this, is that Jesus Christ is our comforter. That even in the midst of this pain, well, we'll see this morning how he can bring comfort, not just in the moment, before eternity, and he comforts us and provides us comfort through th three things. Through his word, number one, through his word. God's word is full of encouragement. It's full of hope. It's full of promises for those that are suffering. So if you are suffering or if you have a friend who is suffering in grief, I want you to look to God's word. Life and peace is found in the words of God because God's word points us back to our ultimate hope. It points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. 
And, and sometimes in, in the midst of our grief, words from Scripture can feel kind of trite. They can feel like, mm, I don't know about that. And yet we trust that God's word is power, God's word is healing, God's word is hope. And we'll talk about that more in a moment, how Jesus uses the word of God, his own words, to bring hope in the midst of pain. These are not in your outline. You can just write these down. He brings uh, comfort through his word, number one. Secondly, he, he brings comfort by his Holy Spirit. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit ministers to us is to be the very real presence of God during our distress, during a life crisis. The scripture calls the Holy Spirit the comforter, the advocate, our helper. And instead of leaving us alone, Jesus has not left us alone. He has given us his very spirit to indwell us, to be with us. That means that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is with you right now, believer. Closer than you can even imagine. When scripture talks about the spirit of God indwelling the believer, have you ever wondered like where he lives? Is he under my rib cage? Is he in my brain? No, no, no. What, what scripture is describing here is this profound metaphor that Jesus Christ by his spirit is as close to us as, as he is with the Father. He is one with us. It, it's a profound intimacy and closeness that is beyond description. He is present with you right now. He is with you. The third way that, that God comforts us in our affliction is through community. We've been talking about this for weeks as we've been going through this one another series. And that's where we come in. Scripture reminds us and calls us as a community that loves one another to be part of this, this healing process by comforting one another, bearing one another's burdens, as it says in Galatians. God has called us as Christians to weep with those who are weeping, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, to come alongside and feel the feelings of those around us that we love. We need community. So the question for us this morning is whether we're the ones suffering and grieving right now or we know others that are, it's this. If we know the truth of God's word, if we are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, if we're part of his church, how then do we live this out practically? What does this look like in real life to bring comfort for those who are suffering? And, and I'll confess to you, this is something that I am I'm learning right now. If any of you have been going through a tragedy and, and, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, Mark, you're actually not that good at bringing comfort. Um, amen. Amen. And that's why I'm studying the scripture right now. John 11, verse 14. Then Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. He knows. He knows what's happened in Bethany, just a few miles away. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. It's a weird thing to say, right? And then he says, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. We'll come back to that next week. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's a long time. We've seen Jesus resuscitate people. We've seen Jesus come to a bedside where someone has been pronounced dead, and he raises them to life. But for the skeptic, they would say, maybe that little girl wasn't actually dead. Or maybe that boy on the funeral pyre wasn't actually dead. But in this case, Lazarus has been entombed for four days. He is dead, and there is a smell beginning to come from his tomb. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. What we're going to see in this passage as we continue to walk through John 11 is we're going to see the way that Jesus brings comfort to those that are hurting and the way that he himself is also hurting with them. It's a profound mystery, but we'll get to this in just a moment. Jesus comes to town, and he comes to two women, two sisters that he loves. 
but they're very different from one another, very different personalities. We've seen this in Luke 11. Mary and Martha are his, are his dear friends, but they're not like each other at all. And so we're going to see both the type of, of grief that they express quite differently and how Jesus responds to them differently as he meets them in, in their, their moment of trial. I, if you would just humor me for a moment, I, I want to consider this morning, some of us are more like Mary, and some of us are more like Martha. And, and I want you to consider maybe who you're like, who you're like in, in seasons of grieving in this passage. Mary and Martha here are, are very contrasting personalities. And I'm not going to put you in a box, but I'm going to ask you to maybe put yourself in a box and consider, am I more like Mary or I, am I more like Martha? Mary is contemplative. Mary is one of those people who's drawn to contemplative spiritual disciplines, like, like prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, quiet times. Mary just loves to sit at the feet of Jesus and to just be with him. Martha, on the other hand, we see in Scripture that she is active, get stuff done, make the checklist, complete the checklist, accomplish something. And the spiritual disciplines that Mary-type personalities really enjoy and are attracted to are things like preaching, serving, administrating, getting things done. Mary is all about being. Martha is all about doing. Mary is all about being faithful, being available, being teachable. Mary enjoys the presence of Jesus. Martha is far more likely to be preparing presence for Jesus. Martha is all about doing, doing the tasks at hand, doing the dishes, preparing the meal. And, and, and so Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is working on his behalf. When you hear this, maybe you've begun to see yourself in, in one of, or the other of these. Maybe you're like, oh, I don't do anything. I must be a Mary. No. <laughs> she's, she's not just watching Netflix all day. That's not what Mary's about. Mary is concerned with relationship. Mary is concerned with her friendship. Am I getting good time with Jesus? Did I listen well? Am I near to him? Martha's concerned with her responsibilities, a never-ending checklist of things to do. Martha's can't sit still because there's always more to do. I'm married to a, a Mary, my wife Beth. She simply loves sitting and being with Jesus, sitting with her Bible and some good coffee and spending a long time just having her quiet time talking with Jesus. Uh, I, on the other hand, am not like that. I'm more of the Martha type. Um, you can write that in your notes. Pastor Mark says, I am a Martha. That's okay. <laughs> I can be real with you, but I tend to think of my time as only well spent if I'm getting things done. Anyone else like that? Like I, I make checklists of things I've already done just so I can check those things off. Anyone? Anyone have that neurosis? Yeah, okay. Um, so which are you? Which are you? Who are you more like in, in, this, in this passage, in this Mary and Martha passage? A any Marys in the house? Any of you more like Mary? Yeah, a few of you. Any of you here more like Martha in Northern Virginia? Yeah, a lot of you. How many of you are not sure you're Mary? Mar Martha knows, right? <laughs> Martha knows. And so what we're going to see here as we continue in this passage is Mary and Martha and the way Jesus knows each one of them and the way he responds to them differently. And it's really kind of fascinating because some people will need to hear words. Some people just need presence. And we'll see how that plays out here. First, we're going to see Jesus bring the possibility of hope, the possibility of hope through his words. It says this. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. I love Martha. She's all action. She sees Jesus coming. She has something to say to him. She goes out and meets him on the road, and she immediately says what's on her mind. I want you to notice how honest she is with Jesus. Did you know you can be honest with Jesus? 
You can be brutally honest with Jesus. He invites that type of honesty and authenticity. And so I want you to see, as Jesus arrives on the road and Martha comes out to meet him, who speaks first? If you look at the passage, who speaks first? Martha. Martha speaks first. There's a lesson here that we can learn from from Jesus in entering into these situations of grief. Sometimes the best thing to do is to just give the gift of your presence. He, he arrives on the scene, and he definitely has something to say to her, but he lets her speak first, and she pours out her heart to him very quickly because she has things to say. Sometimes it's best to just show up and be quiet and wait until the Spirit of God brings the words to mind, and then perhaps it may be the time to speak up. Jesus arrives. Martha comes to him, and notice his words are few, but Martha says to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. I wonder what kind of emotions are underneath this statement. Anger? Anguish? She pours out what she's feeling in just a few sentences. Why didn't he come? But notice, no sooner are the words out of her mouth than she begins to speak also the faith that she has. She has not lost hope. Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus looks at her and he says, your brother will rise again. I wonder how often we're going through something really hard and we hear words like that. Like someone comes along and they say the right thing and we know it's true, but it just doesn't land. We're not ready to hear it. And Jesus comes along and it's as if he says something like, it's going to be okay. He's going to live again. We'll see him in heaven. Something like that. And Martha responds to that and says, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that. She's listened to Jesus' teaching. She knows that this is not the end of the story. She knows she has an ex- expectation to look forward to, but that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, says to her in verse 25, it's as if he says, look at me, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's a question for us. Do you believe this? The depth of what Jesus just said should cause us to meditate for a lifetime. He is the resurrection and the life. But in the simplicity of what he's saying is a simple question. He's saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I, I don't know what you're going through this morning. Actually, I do. For, for many of you, I do know what you're going through this morning, and it's devastating. And maybe you're not ready to hear a bunch of spiritual platitudes about how it's all going to be okay, but Jesus would simply ask you this this morning. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? He is the resurrection and the life, and you can be honest with God, brutally honest, and trust him. That's what we see in Martha. She pours her heart out, and yet she trusts him. She said this to him. No doubt through her tears, she says, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus, with his words, brings to Martha the possibility of hope. The second thing we we see as, as he comes to Mary is he gives Mary and Martha and everyone there permission to hurt through weeping, permission to hurt. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here 
and he's calling for you. As Martha goes and privately pulls aside her sister for a meeting with Jesus, think about these words. He's here, and he's calling for you. He's here, and he's calling for you. Some of you are here in church this morning, and and you're not actually a believer. You have not yet made a profession of faith in Jesus, and I don't want to over-spiritualize this phrase in Scripture other other than to say that it's true today. Jesus is here, and he's calling for you. Don't hold back. Respond to his call. If you've never responded to the call of Jesus and he's brought you here into church this morning, that's a simple appeal. Jesus is here and he is real and would call you to believe in him. Respond to him. Let's see what Mary does. Verse 29, when she heard it, she rose quickly, immediately. She gets up right away and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We see, again, in Mary's personality, consistent with what we see in Luke's gospel, she feels deeply and she is completely overcome with grief, so much so that she can't even say a word. She doesn't even go for a a hug or an embrace. She just falls down at his feet and weeps into the dirt. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In the Greek, that word troubled when we translate it troubled, it really doesn't capture the feeling at all. This is a word that, that connotes deep distress. It's similar to, to the sound a horse makes when it's snorting. It's really hard to describe, hard to translate. One translator put it closer to the emotional reality. He says that he gave way to such distress of spirit that it made his body tremble. That's closer to what Jesus is, is demonstrating here in his emotional response. Deeply distressed. Moved in his spirit. Moved in in some sense with with anger and sadness. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus looks at the tomb and it says, Jesus wept. It's difficult to to grasp the magnitude of that. The, The impact of this. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows that he's about to call out and something amazing and miraculous is going to happen. He knows that with a word, he can raise Lazarus. And yet in the company of those who are hurting and weeping, the son of God is overcome with a wave of deep emotion. This isn't just empathy with Mary, although that's, that's very worthwhile. This isn't just empathy, but Jesus himself is grieving. Weeping despite knowing what's going to happen next, weeping over the loss of his friend. Why? Because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves people. He loves you deeply. It's a love that that sometimes we don't even grasp the depth of. A love that when he sees this family in so much pain and turmoil, he is moved with, with the depths of emotion. He loves you. When you weep, Jesus demonstrates here that he weeps with us. His his tears, your tears, are precious to him. Your sorrows are not lost on him. 
He is with you in them. He enters into your pain. And Jesus here, he gives permission to everyone there to grieve. Martha probably hadn't cried in front of anyone. And here as she sees her Savior weeping, suddenly I, I believe she has permission to grieve too. Jesus loves people, so he weeps. Jesus hates death and sin. And this deeply troubled emotion that he's feeling, in it, there's this connotation of anger. Anger toward what? Toward death. Toward human sin, toward the effects of this corrupting power of sin in his creation. So much so that he is willing to die to stop it in just a few short weeks. And here, confronted with the evil of death and love for his friend, Jesus breaks down weeping. God invites us through this to be real with him in our sorrows and in our grief. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. The third thing we see from Jesus is that he has the power to heal, the power to work wonders. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the, of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of everyone here gathered around, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. When Jesus speaks a command, even death itself is powerless to oppose. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Lazarus came out. He's alive, healed, made whole, a brother restored to his sisters. I, I would just love to be there, to see the, the spontaneous worship that must have been breaking out around that tomb. Different kind of tears, right? Different kind of joy, different kind of elation as they see their brother come back to life. And so as we consider this passage, it, the response for us is, it's so what, right? So what? what? What does this mean for us? How does this help me? If I have a brother or sister who's walking through grief and suffering and pain, I can't do that, right? I, I can't call into the tomb and have someone come back to life. I don't have that kind of power. No, no, no. But we serve a God who has exactly that kind of power that he has demonstrated here. And so what I want to invite us to do is just to consider, how does this play into our lives today? How might we take comfort in our own grieving, and how might we comfort others? I think of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that 
as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. A lot of comfort in that one little passage. That word comfort shows up again and again and again. And what, what Paul is saying is that, that the same way that God comforts you in your affliction, that will give you strength to have something to give to others who are suffering. We take comfort in the fact that God is with us. He's with us in our affliction so that we might comfort others in theirs. And, and this idea of comfort in the New Testament, it, it always kind of has this idea of coming alongside those who are hurting. I don't know if any of you watched the, uh, the Final Four last weekend, but that big North Carolina uh, center, Baycott, rolled his ankle, huge dude. And, and I just had this picture of these people helping him off the court, right? Comfort, coming alongside, putting their arms underneath him to help him off the court in order to recover. That's the picture we see of comfort in the New Testament. In English, these, these words, this word comfort comes from co-fortitude. And I know I used the word fortitude twice in like the last three weeks, so uh, get used to it. I guess it's my new favorite word. But co-fortitude is this co-strengthening of each other. By someone else coming alongside you in your suffering and being with you, it gives you strength to keep on keeping on. Co-fortitude is sharing in each other's sufferings. And as we look at the idea of comfort in Scripture, it really comes down to doing two things for one another. Number one, sustaining, and number two, healing. Sustaining is simply joining our hurting friends and family in, a, in acknowledging the pain that they're going through. Sustaining really is entering into that pain with them. Going into those depths and sitting with people and just being with people. Not, not taking the weight on yourselves and carrying it. You can't do that. But being willing to be with those who are in darkness. This is really hard to do. Sometimes when we know people around us are hurting and grieving, we, we kind of want to stay away. We'd rather not go there. We'd rather not enter in. We don't know when the timing is right. And I would just encourage you, it is better to step in and love people with your presence than to not. If they don't want you there, they'll tell you. But sustaining is, is being willing to climb down into the darkness with other people. It's normal to hurt, unfortunately. And Christians often, unfortunately, have this attitude that if you were really spiritual, then you wouldn't be going through pain at all. You would just see God's sovereign hand in all of this and it would all be okay and you wouldn't be hurting so much. But what we see in Jesus as he comes to the tomb, as he weeps with his friends, is that he gives permission to grieve. Jesus weeps at the loss of his friend. God is pleased when we are honest with him. Think of the Psalms. Think of David, whose Psalms of lament are, are often, quite honestly, complaints to God about the pain he's experiencing. 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. This is a model for us, that we can be honest with God and yet anchored to hope. Anchored to hope. Sustaining is coming alongside those who are, are hurting, but it doesn't stop there. Healing is the next step, and, and what healing is, is taking people from it's normal to hurt to it's possible to hope. It's possible to hope. How can we do that? Well, we direct people to the truth of God's word when we can, when the opportunity arises, we come alongside people in community. We stay close to those that are our friends. We draw near to each other. Maybe it's just an encouragement to bring someone back to church who's been going through a hard time to be back around others who could encourage them. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he encourages kind of both things, allowing others to acknowledge his suffering. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He's telling you, this is what I'm going through. 
And then he says this, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So what do we do? When our friends and our family are suffering, we come alongside them, we acknowledge the pain, we give space for them to be able to actually grieve. And when the opportunity arises, just as Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, we direct their gaze, not down and in, but up and out toward our ultimate hope in Jesus. Here's what's so striking to me as, as we come to the end of this. The raising of Lazarus is not our final hope. It wasn't for him. This can't be it because just days later, Jesus and his disciples are going to run back out of town. They're going to spend some time in the wilderness because of the death threats that they're receiving. Lazarus, it says in the beginning of the next chapter, he begins to receive death threats because he's leading people to Jesus. The Jews want to murder Lazarus, which is so strange. He just rose from the dead. I mean, it's, I don't know what the plan is there. But this is not our ultimate hope. Lazarus would go on to die at some point. Jesus would be nailed to a cross in just a few days. In John's gospel, what we see is that this raising of Lazarus is the last miracle of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had just done something that only God can do, and yet in the coming weeks, the crowds will turn against him as he makes his last Passover journey into Jerusalem, is arrested, beaten, mocked, scorned, and nailed to a wooden cross. Lazarus will go on to die again. Jesus will die. But what we anchor our hope in as believers is that on a Sunday some 2,000 years ago, Jesus conquered death, conquered the grave, and the stone was rolled away. And on that day, death itself lost all its power. But even that, is that the fullness of our hope? No, because of that, we look forward to being resurrected ourselves into eternal life with Jesus. We anchor our hope in resurrection. That by believing in him, by believing in his saving work on the cross, we have hope, not just for now, but for eternity. Because what scripture tells us is that Christ will return and that all the dead in Christ will rise to live with him, that he will make everything new and he will dwell with us forevermore. That is our hope. Come back next week as we celebrate that hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in the midst of our suffering, in our grief, you do give hope, Lord. We thank you for the demonstration through this interaction with these dear sisters to you, Lord, that you, you enter into our pain. You invite our honesty. You are with us in our suffering. And Lord, we thank you most of all that we have an ultimate resurrection hope. That when you conquered sin and death, you did that not just for yourself, but for all those who would believe in you. Lord, I pray for anyone who's grieving this morning that you would renew their sense of hope in you. The resurrection and the life. Lord, empower us as a church by your spirit to comfort well. And to receive comfort well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.